as a human being, right, you have a certain nervous system makeup. And a lot of things go in there, and there's a lot of theories about it on what plays into what a human's, human's nervous system needs. Um, some of the things that uh, we know about and that are well documented, of course, are um, fight or flight and rest and digest, you know, the two systems in the nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic, but... It's and you know often uh, rest and digest is also called um, feed and breed, right? And so it's called feed and breed because it takes a stepping down of your nervous system to want to to connect in that way. And that's by the way true for men and women alike, with one exception, which is that in a man's nervous system, um, there's also a function where when your life is in danger, you want to ejaculate because you want to you know, somehow give your genetic material away before you die. There is a function that makes the man want to unload, so to speak, before dying, right? So some men have that very strongly, and so they can have sex in an extremely high-stress situation. And you hear this often and see this often where men will go to porn and masturbate and whatever they can when they're really, really stressed. And that is a function of that. But that's a different mechanism than wanting to combine yourself with the partner of your choice for other things than, you know, procreation and, and, and you know, your DNA being spread. There's, those are two different things. So within the nervous system, you have to... Um, Look at how much fight or flight are you activating? How much uh, breed and feed are you activating? Are they somewhere um, dynamic and, and fluid and you can go from one to the other as needed? Or do you have chronic fight or flight? Right? And a lot of people have chronic fight or flight simply by living in, in this particular environment. Uh, so um, input, meaning... Um, uh, external stimulation is one of the main things that causes a rise in that in that particular part of the nervous system. Then there's of course acute uh, trauma, so you know accidents or a threat or something like that. But that's not nearly as uh, tough to deal with than chronic overstimulation. So now. Cat to what did you say? Three cats, a dog, two almost grown boys, uh, and and your uh, you know your partner, and 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 that's chronic overstimulation on your nervous system. Now, different people have different um, requirements. So, for instance, the more outgoing you are the more that kind of chaos actually feels nourishing because you see it as a relational engagement. The more extroverted you are, the less this is going to feed you. On the contrary, it's actually going to deplete you. So you have to kind of see where you are on the scale, if you're outgoing or extroverted, and um, also you know, how much other demands does does your body have to deal with on an ongoing basis? So that gives you somewhere on once again here's the graph right uh, somewhere on the spectrum between extremely outgoing and extremely 
you know, extroverted, you'll lay there somewhere. And that gives you an idea of how much you need to step down before you can engage sexually. Right? And so mostly what happens in a relationship is you have one of each Right. And so you usually have an extrovert with an introvert. Not always, but often. And then they both suffer because the extrovert just wants more of the, ah, you know, like the thing. And the, uh, the, the, yeah, the extrovert and the introvert is like, make these people go away. Just give me a moment. And therein lies the interesting erotic tension. But in life, it's a bit annoying. Right. So... That all said, there's also another model. We were just, uh, well, you were there. Did you hear Helen Fisher speak? Who is a hero of mine and uh, and always has been. And we were in, in the same conference and it was just really fantastic. So Helen Fisher talks about, because she's done all the brain scans and everything, about um, the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, estrogen, brain receptor models, right? Where if you're very high in the dopamine range, um, you can take a lot more, you know, excitement and, and, and chaos than if you're very low on the dopamine range. If you're high at serotonin, you need order and quiet and peace and things have to be organized a certain way and so on. So, you know, so there's, there's, um, different ways you can look at it in the brain and the nervous system. But that all said, um, you have already, identified that you need time and space so you can function optimally sexually as well as in your life. And to override that would be a huge disservice, right? Because one of the things that makes a a human being valuable as a partner is that you can actually know yourself well enough that what you're offering comes from a place of not being too compromised, Right. That's very, very important. There's no way you can maintain long-term relationship, good long-term relationship, when you're compromised. You can compromise every which way and, you know, and keep a thing going for long enough, but at some point it's going to you know, go to shit, to say it very, very brutally, because you are actually limping you know, along with all the things that happen. So... From that viewpoint, I would say you have to carve out time to step down and be away from the chaos. And how that looks is for you to decide. So you could have a regular meditation practice, which goes a long way in that, in that domain. Um, you could have a room away. I don't know if you work from home or not. Do um, you work from home? I haven't worked since I moved. Okay, well, so that's probably one of the... So you're constantly, right? So maybe you have to go somewhere else where it's quiet and make that, uh, you know, a very specific and distinct uh, practice, so to speak, so that you're not always in the, you know, in in the flow of that hurricane. So that's very important. Or you go for a walk or you have a friend you go to uh, or an activity that steps you down. And uh, on that level, you have to demand that time and space because you're going to be miserable and hence not a very good partner, right? So that's that. 
once that's happened and once you have um, essentially known yourself enough to know what you need and you're capable of enforcing that for the good of you and the relationship, then you can, and only then, you can't bypass this, I can't say this enough, then and only then can you as an experiment let yourself be washed by the chaos. So I don't know if you've ever surfed. A little bit. So in, in surfing, right, when you get thrown off your board and you get tumbled, they sometimes call that being washed, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things that you have to do when you're in a fairly big wave and you get thrown and you tumble, you have to relax, right? You have to relax your body and you have to have that thing take you till you can get up and get air. And so that's a very, that's the kind of metaphor where you let yourself be tumbled and you go with it and it's almost like a massage and not this life-threatening thing where you won't get the air and you have to come up which is of course in the beginning when you surf what it feels like and then you you know when you are a good surfer you train to not get panicked when that happens and then of course you get better at just being with that but that of course is within the context of not getting killed right Mm -hmm. And so in surfing, that's fairly clear. You know if you can come up for air, you're going to die. In a relationship, that's not as apparent. But it's the same thing, right? You can go in and let yourself be tumbled a bit and actually almost enjoy it. It's like loud noise or things are coming at you and you take a sound bath or, you know, all dogs bark and cats bark and whatever and <laughs> meow, I should say, um, And you're kind of like, yeah, 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 for a moment, because why not? But then you have to come up for air, meaning you have to go away, you have to reset. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, ever so often you can let yourself back in. So it's a two-step process. Don't mistrust your body, right? Super important. When your body wants to go one way, don't mistrust that. This is how people get into really rough waters because the thing is, your body doesn't lie. When your body says, I'm going to fuck out of here, but your mind goes, I must be present in her storm, right? (laughs) What you're essentially saying is that you're not trusting yourself and you're trusting some idea better than when your body says run, right? So it's very, very, very important because sometimes uh, why would you expose yourself to abusive you know, talk. Other times, if you're well-resourced, you can maybe stick it out and see what's underneath there. But you don't want to override what you're feeling. Are you going to always do it? Probably not. But you need to know that that's what's happening and that your impulse to leave is an actual uh, message from your body that you are in over your head. And that your body wants to get you out of harm's way. Rightly or wrongly is not the point. Your body is saying, ah, enough. Right. And that's super, super important. If, you know, he says to his partner, look, 
my nervous system just needs to step down. I'm no longer functioning and I can't actually be the lover that you want me to be. So every morning from whatever, seven to 10, I will be going somewhere and meditating and writing and doing my thing. Then I'll be back and I'll engage in the chaos. Yeah, it takes some communication, right? And yeah, and, and, and that is the, that's, on both, right? If she has no idea that he suffers from the chaos. Exactly. And nobody said to you, well, they did. They said, I can't handle this. I'm out of here. Well, that's a sign that he can't handle it and he has to leave, right? So when that happens, you have to kind of go, oh, this person's nervous system isn't built for what my nervous system can handle. Which, for instance, once again, right, if you are, um, I don't know, you're half deaf and you like music and you listen to music really, really, really loud so you can hear it, and your partner walks in and, and, and you know, it's like being at a rock concert and they can barely hear and they step away, you wouldn't be offended or upset. You'd go, oh, I'm hurting his ears with my loud music. But that's the equivalent of that. You're hurting his nervous system with the chaos, not because you are a bad person, but because he has a different nervous system. And so the key there is that and this is a mutual thing and it requires attention and it requires self-knowledge and it requires the ability to set boundaries and all of those great things. That one person can say to the other, look, I can't handle this before they have to blow out, right? And then uh, you say, oh, oh, you know, and then you can either go, never mind, this is the way it is, you deal with it, uh, or you can go, oh, okay, well, let's make some allowances for this person's nervous system. And maybe, you know, you lock up the kids and the cats for the first hour in the morning or send them on the, you know, to get the milk or whatever, right? There's ways to do that. So, and then we'll end. Uh, my parents, who knew nothing about any of this, right? I mean, I don't think either of my parents has ever read a relationship book or done a self-help seminar, ever, right? But my parents um, were essentially, you know, young parents that just built a house and we were five years apart, so they had essentially a baby and a toddler and so on and so on. And two girls and, you know, both of us quite the handful. And my father had a very, very demanding job and my mother raised us, was a stay-at-home mother. So that's a fairly rough set of circumstances because um, when, that, when the coming together happens, my father came from... Eight, eight, ten hours, and he had to commute for an hour either way, right? So he came from ten hours of high, high, high intensity, and my mother spent her entire day with two kids, also very in the house that was still being built and stuff like that. So the classic scenario there is the moment the man comes home, in this case the man, right? It doesn't matter who does what. My mother could have gone relieve me, you know, I need space and, and do something for me and take the kids and whatever. And my father's like, fuck, right? I, I need some space. So how they handled it without knowing any of this is 
they had a protocol that was not to be disturbed other than in absolute emergencies. And that was my father drove into the garage, the garage connected to the house. You know, we'd be at the door, daddy, daddy, and the whole thing. He'd greet us. He'd send us to the living room, wherever, right? He went left into the bedroom. The door was closed, and he had an hour to himself, non-negotiable. There it was an understanding between my parents that that was needed. And then, you know, he'd have a shower, he'd change. This was, of course, pre-computers uh, and iPads, so he read. Or, you know, sometimes my mom would go in there and they'd spend some time just hanging out and talking without us being there. And then when he was ready at a shower, he'd get changed He'd come out and then he'd kind of take over and give my mother some space. And then they put us to bed and, you know, they had the rest of the evening to themselves. So that's a prime example of two people having worked out their nervous system needs. And that worked well. They're in their late 70s now. They've been married for over 50 years and they still have a really vibrant alive, fun relationship. And it's because they don't force the other person to be something that they're not. Right? Still go on separate vacations on occasion because my dad likes different things than my mom. Uh, you know, and, and that way you can take somebody else's nervous system into account without making it personal about the rejection of the chaos is a rejection of you, which it's not. It's just the nervous system going, but yeah, it sucks. It's, it's not easy, but, but here we are. And so we can't go, oh, we're a victim of the circumstance and hence we're in this horrible situation and nothing can be done. You have to essentially adapt and go, well, now that we're here, how do we deal with our body, our nervous system, our sex drive, our, you know, input, output, stuff like that. It's, definitely harder than when we all went to bed when the lights went out right when when the sun went down and um but here we are well i think the first thing to be said about that is the more you can know about your own body and your own pleasure this is true for men and women right the better because as i was saying earlier, we're really driven by certain things, urges, right, and, and the need to combine ourselves and have sex and all of those. And for most of us, that doesn't go away unless there was some severe trauma or things like that. And it doesn't go away with age either. This is a total myth, right? Um, I know women in their 70s who are you know, perfectly happy to be sexually active. And it's not like the kitchen suddenly closes at some point, as it's sometimes or used to be portrayed, you know, in earlier generations. Um, so the more you know and the more you can uh, be with your body in the domain of pleasure, the better for all the reasons we talked about with Raul. This is true for women as well. And particularly because we actually have um, a wider range of um, sensation available, meaning we have several, several locales, so to speak, that can be extremely pleasurable. Um, and to know those and to know the difference and what they do in your body is super important. So most people, um, well, I should say most people, 
men and women alike, right, start with external stimulation because that's the first thing you come across, right? So uh, it doesn't matter if you're a girl, little girl or a boy, the first things that ever wake up in that department are the things that, that are outside, you know, a clitoris in a woman and, uh, and the penis in a man. And so those are the things that are easy to touch or they can get aroused, uh, you know, by accident, and that's how most people discover their sexuality. And so most women... Um, at, you know, of course, there's all the things that have to do with trauma and abuse and all of that. But aside from that, most women have a fairly good relationship with their clitoris and they know how to arouse themselves and stimulate themselves and, and have orgasms. If uh, you don't, then that's where you start, right? You experiment around with that. But then once you kind of have that down, there's other things you can explore, and the G-spot is one of them. Um, it's also worth mentioning, which is something that most people don't know, um, and it's definitely highly advisable to research this and look at some sketches for both men and women, right? That the clitoris isn't just that little bump, right? It looks like a horseshoe, and then it has this this uh, kind of extension that goes upwards. So it's like this really interesting um, set of, of sensations that um, go way wider than the actual clit in itself. And so that in itself is an interesting exploration on feeling all of that out and noticing all of that and noticing a very soft stimulation very versus very vigorous sim stimulation. There's a whole thing that I could talk about, which I'm not going to right now, is when you use a lot of vibration, um, you actually desensitize, and then you have to learn how to resensitize, uh, because otherwise you need more and more and more stimulation, and then you find yourself with the jackhammer of all vibrators, right? And that And that's not really happening so much anymore. So so there's there, within the clitoral domain, there's a lot that can be played with. And then within the G-spot domain, there is even more because the G-spot is hotly contested, as you probably have read already, right? There's still some doctors who say it's not, it doesn't exist, which is just <laughs> so bizarre, right? So there's still people who maintain that that's really not, you know, it's a figment of women's imagination or something like that. But anybody who's ever stimulated their G-spot, of course, knows that there is such thing. And then within the stimulation of the G-spot, some women accumulate fluids in that, in that particular area. And um, that, that accumulation of fluids in the orgasmic response, which feels very, very different than a clitoral orgasm, gets expelled and that's what then is called female ejaculation. And then once again, some people think it's just people peeing, right? And then because also the sensations of um, a G-spot orgasm, the, the on-ramp to the G-spot orgasm feels a little bit like you have to pee. So it feels a little bit like, oh, God, what's going to happen next, right? So... Um, there is some experimentation there, and also usually in the arousal process, there's a whole 
um, layer of the arousal that feels kind of a bit, if you don't know what you're doing, like you're going to pee yourself and it's not very pleasant. And if you persist through that, there's a whole other realm of sensation available. Um, and it doesn't feel like the conventional orgasm that has the tension explosion pattern. It's more like this rolling, ongoing sensation that can build and build and build and build. And so that's when people often talk about multiple orgasms. It's usually fairly common and fairly easy when you know what you're doing to have multiple G-spot orgasms. And for a lot of women, the ejaculation doesn't start till the second, third, fourth, simply because that's when the fluids really build up, right? So there's a whole layer of exploration that you can engage either with a partner or by yourself. And, if, and I always personally think that um, men and women alike, you should be able to nourish yourself so that you're not ever so needy that you have to make choices that you're later going to regret. Right. So um, knowing how to do it yourself, I think, is super important. Then you can play with a partner and it's, it's added benefits. The G-spot orgasm also needs a bit of training. If you, you know, like if you're not used to it, you have to find and feel and notice those sensations. And then um, contrary, once again, to popular belief, you can have them very, very quickly. Right? There's a whole thing. It takes 20, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, not when your body... I know... I don't know who writes these books, guys mostly, but (laughs) you can have them really, really quickly when your body is trained to know what it's looking for. So there's that. Then, (laughs) the holy grail of tantric experience, this is the the, um, equivalent to the man who can bypass uh, ejaculation perfectly and has multiple full body orgasms is the tantric wizard dress who has uh, cervical orgasms, right? And, and there's so much pressure put on women to have them, which of course is not exactly how you have them. But there's a form of orgasm where your cervix is involved, which um, usually means you have to do a little bit of work on and around your cervix because a lot of tension stores in that area. And sometimes that feels very unpleasant to begin with and you have to kind of loosen it up and relax it. But at some point you'll get to a point where the area around the cervix and the cervix are very alive. You can actually feel it throughout the day and then you can have cervical orgasms with touch or intercourse or just by walking in nature or going into the water or dancing or whatever. It's this unfurling of the inside of your body out in these waves. Like, you know, it's hard to explain, but once you've had it, once again, you'll know what to look for and it's fairly available, right? If you stick with it. Most of these things require that you stick through uh, and a layer that has nothing to do with the actual pleasure it has to do with the conditionings around the pleasure. Right? Trauma, sexual abuse, having been uh, 
never really touched by anyone in the in the ways that were really pleasant, having compromised herself sexually, religious things, societal things, you know, those are usually the things you have to work through. And that's why committing to a sexual practice versus just willy-nilly exploration, so to speak, is really useful because if you say, let's say, Oh, by the way, I wanted to say with the G-spot, um, the best way to get started is with a wand. A wand, a G-spot wand. I'm happy to give you a link to my favorite, um, which is some woman down in San Diego who has the oldest website known to womankind. She must have created that thing when websites first were created and never updated it. So it's a, it's really a horrible shopping experience. But she makes the, be, the hands down the best G-spot wand in the world. So go figure, right? So, uh, but with, with cervical, you can also work with a wand, which when you do it yourself is good because you want to keep your body relaxed and not be in some weird position all folded in on yourself, right? That is kind of counterproductive. But then in addition to all of those, um, there's other spots internally that are um, e you know, equally pleasurable. There's, of course, the whole uh, topic of anal stimulation and all the things that that does. There's full body pleasure. So, so you can endlessly amuse yourself um, in, in exploring your pleasure body and what I was saying was the reason why it's a sexual practice isn't so much because we need to instill discipline into our pleasure, but because um, the only way that you will find your holds on pleasure, why you're not having pleasure naturally, why you're not as engaged with yourself and the partner sexually, have to do with things that are more in the psychological, emotional, traumatic area. And so you use the practice aspect, meaning the commitment to, let's say, five minutes a day of moving your body in nonlinear. So that will tell you everything about your relationship with your pleasure or with your body. Well, it has to do with um, supposedly, right? Once again, you can't believe the medical uh, society on these kind of things. But supposedly there is a gland um, like that, that collects the fluids within the G-spot, right? And supposedly it's the same part that in men forms the prostate. So it's similar tissue. And so some, depending on the way you're built, you might have only the tiniest little bit of that tissue or you might have a lot of that tissue. The amount of tissue you have determines how much fluid you produce. And so some women squirt enormous amounts and always have to um, you know, travel with thick mats and, and, uh, and, and towels. Right? Others, it's barely noticeable. And like I said, it has to do also with duration. And it, interestingly enough, also has to do with hydration. Not interestingly enough, that's actually self. It's apparent. But if you're not hydrated, you're not going to squirt because there's just not enough fluids to go around. But if you're really hydrated, um, you can cause some pretty good destruction. <laughs> you know, so, so it has to do with that. And um, 
you know, I, I don't think the squirting is the goal. I think the full sensation is the goal. And then often two, three, four times into it, it will happen. And like I said, often people think they've just lost control of their bladder when really they squirt it and or, right? So, so the, the best advice I can give you is don't be squeamish about it and follow whatever, whatever weird impulse it feels like all the way through. Just have lots of towels. It's useful to have strong pelvic muscles, but there is once again a caveat. Kegels are highly overrated, right? Uh, Kegels are not the only thing you want to focus on because you can actually wear out your pelvic floor. And a lot of women have weak pelvic floor muscles, not because um, they need to do more Kegels. They've done too much pulling up from stress and tension and and trauma, so that muscle has actually worn out, and you have to actually uh, strengthen the entirety of the pelvic floor through squats and other things. So squats, yes, very important. Good squatting is really what gives you really good pelvic floor.